book, 1 Peter, and we're going to hop over chapter 4 to chapter 5 and spend some time in chapter 5, starting this morning with 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5. Let Let me read those verses for you, and then we'll pray. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let's pray for a moment. Show us yourself, Lord Jesus. Open our hearts by your Spirit. Make us more like you that we might feast. Upon your glory and grace, we pray for your sake. Amen. As Peter begins to wind down his epistle, he starts the last chapter by addressing leaders. So I exhort the elders among you. Interesting that he doesn't say, I, Peter, the apostle of Jesus Christ, but he identifies himself as a fellow elder. Why does he begin his wrap-up by addressing church leaders, elders? Probably because at the end of chapter 4, he has made this amazing statement. Jamie will preach on this subsequently. Judgment begins with the household of God. And he alludes very specifically to the suffering that Christians inevitably will endure as followers of Jesus. And it seems that he is identifying leaders as those who must model, right, see verse 3, being examples to the flock. It is church leaders, elders, who would model faithfulness to Jesus in the midst of suffering and purity of heart while they do it. So the focus at the beginning of this chapter is on the leaders, and essentially, I'll just give you a quick, simple overview of what he does. He tells them what to do, shepherd the flock, exercising oversight. He tells them how by using three contrasting motivations. We'll look at all of that next week. And he tells them why, because when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. So we'll unpack those components next week. They are the shepherds over which Jesus is the chief shepherd. Here's the question I want to look at with you this morning. Where does Peter get his vision of Jesus as chief shepherd? Why do the elders in the church, church leadership, need to understand that about Jesus? Where does he cast their care for their flock in terms of shepherding. And then, you know, why should you care? (laughs) 
This is actually the second time in the epistle Peter has referred to Jesus as shepherd in 2.25. He says, you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And in Christianity, there's this strange twist. Not only is Jesus shepherd, he's actually the lamb that is sacrificed for us. Chapter 119, you were ransomed from your former uh, manner of life with the precious blood of Jesus, that of a lamb unblemished. So there's this mystery in Christianity that Jesus is not just the shepherd of the sheep, he's the lamb that is offered for their sins. We'll unpack that as we go along. Let's answer this question. Where does Jesus get his vision of Jesus as shepherd? This is important for you and me. Two sources One, the written word of God, and two, Jesus, the living word of God. Those are his two sources. So let's look first. Peter gets his vision of Jesus as shepherd of God's people from the word of God. God wants to be known. He wants you to know him so you can enjoy him, so that you can glorify him. And it turns out when you read your Bible, you see that God reveals himself in a great variety of ways. He condescends, as it were, to reveal himself in ways that we frail human beings can understand, that we can relate to, that we can grasp vividly because we have things in our experience that we can connect what God is like to what we experience in everyday existence. One of those is God wants to be known as shepherd. Shepherds, by definition, have ownership over and authority over their flock. To be human is to be owned by and to have God have authority over your life. So think of the classic statement of this. Most people know Psalm 23 The Lord, David writes, is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Telling us of God's delight to provide for us, protect us, preserve us, and to give you personal attention. A lot could be said about that psalm. Jamie read earlier from the call to worship, Psalm 80. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel. This is who God is, shepherd of Israel. You who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned above the cherubim, shine forth. Do you see there both the transcendence and the eminence of God? God is both utterly different, just just beyond what we can imagine. He's transcended. He's above the cherubim, And yet he's imminent, he's near. He shepherds his people like a flock. Shepherds are with their sheep. God is with us near in our presence. Psalm 100, verse 3. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us. We are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. You owe your existence to God. You belong to God. God gives himself to you as a shepherd does his flock. 
This image, God as shepherd, appears in all the major prophets, Isaiah 40, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 37, we'll see later, Ezekiel 34, and even Micah chapter 5, he's not a major prophet, but there's this picture of the coming of Jesus in terms of prophet Micah 5. And in contrast, I think it was Frank that read earlier in our service, in contrast to the unfaithful leaders of Israel, the unfaithful leaders of Israel who are roundly condemned in the beginning of Ezekiel 34, God reveals himself to us from the passage we saw earlier in Ezekiel 34, beginning at verse 11, as that faithful shepherd. I'll just read for you again verse 15. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost and bring them back, bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong. I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. Why are these images so helpful? Because everyone in the culture to which they're written could understand it. Every day you saw, you saw shepherds with, with their flocks. And you knew intuitively this. Those are his sheep. Those sheep follow him. You knew intuitively he cares for that flock. That flock, those sheep need him, that shepherd. He's in control of that flock, not them. It's just by definition, the relationship between shepherd and flock. And you see how much this tells you about God and yourself. What does it tell you about yourself? You are helpless. You are in need of help and protection and correction and guidance without God. You're lost. God must seek you and find you to bring you in relationship to himself. There's a humbling. To, to know God revealed a shepherd should produce a sense of desperation in you. Oh my goodness. You better come find me, God, or I will wander and self-destroy you have no identity beyond the flock. There's no such thing as a sheep who gets up in his house, goes off to work, come back, plays in the backyard, goes down and out to the low. There's no such thing as an individual sheep with an individual existence. They are sheep in a flock with a shepherd. You have no independence apart from God. That's what you're supposed to conclude when God reveals himself to you as shepherd. So it's no wonder how do you think the Bible is going to describe sin? If God is shepherd, what do you think sin is? According to Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray, each of us to his own way. Sin is insisting on self-reliance, self-determination, self-indulgence, self-identity. That's the nature of rebellion against God because it flies in the face of the fact that God is shepherd. God owns you. He has authority over you. He created you. It's impossible to have an existence apart from God. In him we live and move and have our being. That's why sin is insanity. It's absurd. It's so contrary to the obvious. There's no such thing as a lone ranger sheep. You know what happens to a lone ranger sheep? The wolves come and destroy him. 
So human beings ultimately destroy themselves unless they find God as their shepherd. And so, beloved, this tells you that God's relationship with us is a relationship of commitment to your welfare. Constancy with you providing a relationship of concern, a relationship of comfort, a relationship of correction, a relationship of compassion. I'll, I'll run through that list again because you might be writing it down. God's relationship with us is a relationship of commitment, constancy, concern, comfort your rod and your staff, they comfort me, correction because we stray, and compassion because we're weak and frail. So, it is no wonder in the New Testament that salvation is depicted, among other things, as being rescued as a lost sheep. Jesus told in John 15, three parables picturing how God delights to find the lost and rejoices over them. The first of the three is, goes this way. Jesus told this parable. This is, did I say John? I'm sorry, Luke 15, verse 4. Jesus told this parable. What man among you, having a hundred sheep, if he has one lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? The relentless pursuit of God to find the lost sheep. If you know yourself to be a follower of Jesus today, that's because God pursued you. He found you. He got you. Well, it's even better. He goes until he finds it, and when he found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me, I found my sheep that was lost. And here's the application for the immediate audience of self-righteous Pharisees. I tell you, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons who know, need no need of repentance. A lot we could say about that. I want to ask you this question. Do you sense God's joy over you? He sings over you? He rejoices over you. You're precious to him. And it's all the more stunning considering the cost to find you and deliver you from yourself. That is clear in John 10, 10, Jesus speaking, the thief, Satan, comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus is saying, I must Die. I must be crucified on the cross. I must lose everything in order to rescue you from yourself and give you everything. And this isn't just Jesus. This is a pact between Jesus and his Father. 
It is the delight of both to seek and to save the lost. John 10, 14, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. I lay my life down for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. Why must he bring them? It is his pleasure to save a people for himself. He wants a big flock. And that flock is from every tribe and tongue and it looks like every type of people. I must bring them. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life for the sheep and I will take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This I receive from my Father. See, that's the difference between some leader supposedly martyring himself for the good of his people. Jesus lays down his life, but there is resurrection, as Jamie pointed out earlier in our confession. There is humiliation, but there is the glory of resurrection. It is the sheep, the shepherd who dies, but he is alive forevermore. And in his living, livingness, he is calling lost sheep to himself. If he died in that seat, it, he, how can he call you to himself? So look, you, you say, well, I'm listening to all this, but I live in the 21st century. I've never, seen, I've never seen a shepherd with sheep. But look, the image still works. Whether you are religious or not, you're seeking a shepherd for your soul. We all are. We're, we're dying for something to give our souls protection and provision to rescue us from boredom, from abuse maybe, from danger, from insignificance, from purposelessness, from the poverty of helplessness. We're all seeking a shepherd, and you are being shepherded by the media, by pop culture, boys and girls, the music you're listening to, is shepherding your soul. It has a message to say about you and the meaning of life and what you should pursue and where you should go. We're all being shepherded by the culture that we live in. Okay, Janice and I just finished watching The Good Place on Netflix. I'm not sure I should ask for a raise of hands. I mean, it's basically, what, PG-14, so I can use this as... So what's, so spoiler alert, if you're in the middle of watching it, close your ears, because I'm going to tell you the punchline of the whole series. So spoiler alert, here's the punchline of the series. A group of people make it to heaven. They are given the opportunity for, for absolute unbridled self-indulgence on the heels of which they conclude all that's left is annihilation. All the main characters walk through the door into annihilation. They are utterly and completely unsatisfied with a paradise of self-indulgence. Anything you want, all the time, all you want. And my precious wife said, of course, there's no God in that paradise. When the living God is the God of your paradise, it is impossible to be bored We'll never grow tired of the things God gives us to do, knowing God, enjoying him, brilliant woman I married. Here's the point. That's not the point. Do you know who's shepherding you? What sort of pastor they're leading you to? 
What are they promising to provide? There's a shepherd who sacrifices himself to give you real life. And if you're not sure what that is, find a Christian. Ask them about it. What does it mean that Jesus promises abundant life? We'd love to tease that out with you. So the question Peter, sorry, the question I'm answering today is, from where does Peter draw the image Jesus' shepherd? The first answer is from the written word of God. The second answer is watching the word of God, Jesus. <laughs> Jesus had the privilege of seeing God shepherd people on earth because he looked at Jesus. All the Old Testament images of God as shepherd are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's go back to our original context here. He's writing initially to leaders. What's the point, leaders? And I'll just include church leaders, heads of household leaders. Maybe you lead a business, an organization. Chris Garrett leads a ministry. We pray for Chris Lay. He leads a ministry. Leaders, what's the point? The more you know Jesus, the better you'll shepherd others. The more Jesus has shepherded you, the more effectively you're going to shepherd others. I don't know, dads, moms, how well can you shepherd your children? There's a great book on parenting by Ted Tripp called Shepherding a Child's Heart. That, that's the image. How well can you shepherd your kids if you haven't personally been under the shepherding love and grace and power and wisdom and glory of Jesus? The principle is you can't give away what you don't have. And so... It seems like Peter is saying, leaders, observing you, church members should believe this. Oh, there's no shepherd like Jesus. So in a sense, we're just signposts to the chief shepherd. Now, we could, we could spend time examining how Jesus personally shepherded Jesus at breakfast after his resurrection recorded in John 21 on this encounter on the beach, Sea of Galilee, we could, we could spend time on that. I actually preached on that passage when we began the first Peter series about 10 years ago. But what I want you to know about that is simply this. Jesus experienced the personal shepherding of Jesus, and he received a charge from Jesus to shepherd in Jesus' stead. So in response to the question, do you love me, and the evidence Jesus supplies, here's how you'll know you love me, Peter, is you will feed my sheep, you will tend my sheep, you will feed my lambs. Jesus will continue on earth the shepherding ministry of Jesus, the great shepherd. Elders in the church are continuing the shepherding ministry of Peter. And all church leaders that followed between Peter and us. And we could spend time in the classic passage in John 10 unpacking that. That's not the direction I'm going to go. To finish the sermon, I want to look at just one verse in Matthew, and that's Matthew 9, 36. It's in the outline. This is one of those verses, when I read it, I go, just stunning, jaw-dropping. How many observations can we make about it? So that's how we're going to finish the sermon. John 9, 36. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. 
suppose Peter is standing next to Jesus at this moment. Jesus notices the crowds. He's moved with some compassion because Jesus' estimation is they are like helpless and harassed sheep. What do you think Peter saw in Jesus at that moment? Tears? A sigh? Oh! A moan? Did Jesus burst out in a monologue, say a reiteration of John 10? Did Jesus fall on his knees in prayer? I don't know. What we do know is what Peter I witnessed as Jesus' tangible, concrete, redeeming, rescuing response to the harassment and helplessness of the people over which he grieved. And it's the verse before. It's Matthew 9.35. It's one of those controlling verses that summarizes the ministry of Jesus from a, from a you know, 10,000 foot perspective. Jesus went through all their cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, pro- proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. You just want to think about that like all afternoon, don't you? Let me just tease out some of what that verse tells us. It tells you that God has come to earth to be with his people, to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. It tells you that Jesus Christ alone is the source of truth. In the person and light of Jesus' word, the the harassment of the world and the devil is made known. It's exposed. You only know harassment and helplessness in light of who Jesus is in this person and what he spoke and taught. And you have Jesus is also the source of confidence because he will not lead you astray. He loves his sheep. He's the source of comfort for your life. He notices and cares about what ails you. He sees what's harassing. He sees helplessness. He wants the best for you. And he is the source of compassion. He doesn't despise your weakness. He doesn't despise that you are helpless over your life. No. That's like an alarm sounding Jesus as a good shepherd to run to your aid. To use all the resources of heaven to bring you what you need. He doesn't despise your weakness, your helplessness. He's the only hope for the helpless. He loves to save wayward sheep, feeble people. His heart is filled with kindness. No wonder Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 10. He says, I urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Paul himself had experienced that. Peter had experienced that. So what you tried to hide from others, you try to hide from others your helplessness. How deeply insecure you are in your heart of hearts. We all try to hide it in a variety of different ways. (laughs) Jesus sees it. He knows it. And he'll never use it to condemn you because there is a cross that triumphed over Everything that's wrong with you, Jesus nailed, nailed your guilt and sin and filthiness 
to his cross to forgive you. Therefore, he is the very shepherd we need. He's the shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep, becoming the lamb of God, the sacrifice. He's able to defend you in the heavenly places from harassment of the devil. He defends you by his truth and his light. I mean, who knows how many times Christ has delivered you in the heavenly places from attacks you're not even aware of. You'll find out one day. I bet there's thousands for each of us. He knows your name. Uh, how many people are in the world right now? Some number of billions. He knows your name. He calls your name. And by his Holy Spirit, he opens your heart so that when Jesus calls, you go, yes, that's the shepherd I need to save me from my sins. Because Jesus identified with your helplessness, being nailed helplessly to a cross. Jesus identifies with your harassment being jeered and mocked by the crowds. Oh, he knows what that is. <laughs> and when he returns, he will usher you into a kingdom where there is not a spot or a nanosecond of helplessness and harassment. See, in Jesus Christ, we have packaged to perfection everything we need to thrive to know God, to enjoy him. In Jesus, you find truth with grace, power with gentleness, self-sacrifice without failure, weakness without fear, strength without bullying, sovereignty without injustice, mercy without sentimentalism, anger without bitterness. In Jesus, we find tears without sentimentality or hopelessness. Intensity, but without burnout. Brightness without blinding. In Jesus, we find sound, but not deafening. Touch without a punch. So it's just kind of unthinkable who would be offended by a Jesus who came revealing the ways of God, healing the sick, raising the dead, feeding the hungry, setting free the oppressed. What's not to like there's every, there's actually nothing to dislike in Jesus and only things to dislike in yourself. Your pride that would keep you from this Savior. So who, who was drawn to Jesus? Who was intoxicated with his glory? The helpless, the weak, the destitute. Look, the broken in Jesus saw wholeness. The sick saw healing. Those in darkness saw light. Those in lies saw the truth. Those downcast saw hope. The shaken saw a refuge. The hungry found satisfaction. Those in chains saw freedom. Sinners saw salvation. But the proud and self-righteous, they condemn themselves by rejecting Jesus. I want to ask you, Jesus is calling you today, follow me. I laid my down, down my life for you. I died for sinners on the cross. Trust me, I will forgive you forever. The moment you trust me, follow me. What's keeping you from following Jesus? Be honest with yourself. Be ruthless with yourself. If you'd love to have that non-threatening discussion with any of us, Seek one of us out. You'll never be condemned by us because we know we will be lost and helpless and harassed unless Jesus had found us. But we would love to answer the question, what's keeping you from this Jesus? This is the day to follow Jesus. This is the day. It's right now. It's not tonight. It's not tomorrow. It's not next week. 
This is the day to follow Jesus. He is calling you. Follow me. I will give you life. I could say more, but I think I want to end right there. Next week, we'll come back and look specifically at how he addresses leaders. Let me pray for us. Oh, great shepherd. Thank you that you have come to reveal the glory of your Father to us. The Lord who's our shepherd, who promised ages past to come, to seek, to heal, to save, to rescue, to bring back. You've promised, Father, and you've fulfilled it in Jesus. And now we look back at that magnificent, breathtaking deliverance of Jesus, that to save us, he had to die. And thank you, Father, for raising that precious, glorious life up into indestructible life, Jesus, the good shepherd, who now calls us, follow me. Do you hear my voice? It is the voice of grace. It is the voice of promised mercy. It is a tender kind. It is a strong. It is an infallible voice. There is salvation in no one else. So Holy Spirit, open our eyes, unstop our ears, give us hearts to respond to this call to follow Jesus, to find life. And then, may we call others to this Jesus as well. For his glory's sake, amen.